thank you for joining us here at Fort Hill Community Church. A little snowy this morning, kind of caught me off guard, wasn't expecting that. Fortunately, it wasn't another blizzard or... This past snowstorm was, it was the sleet. I don't know if you guys tried uh, shoveling those two inches, three inches of sleet. It was terrible. I just gave up. I just, I was like, I'm not doing that anymore. It's just not worth it. So, uh, fortunately, it wasn't that. Well, welcome today, uh, and those joining us online on our Facebook page, uh, welcome to Fort Hill Community Church. We're glad to have you here with us. Um, we are working through, very diligently, the Gospel of John. We're going to be in John chapter 14. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles, you can do that, and we'll also have the Scripture uh, behind us right here. And if you don't have a Bible, we have uh, Bibles kind of strewn throughout the building. You can go and find one. And today, we are going to be in verses uh, 1 to 11, as we continue working through this book, whose main point is exactly uh, what uh, we see sort of on the, the logo. If you want to go back to that logo for me, Tricia. Um, so that you may believe. John wrote this gospel. He wrote this book. So that you may believe. Believe what? Believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Last week, Jesus gave this message to his disciples. He says, where I'm going, you cannot come. And his disciples Freaked out a little bit. I don't know if you remember reading that. It's like whenever Hannah has um, a, a Saturday uh, evening shift, and whenever she goes to her Saturday evening shift, the kids are like, what? No, you can't go, Mom, you can't go. Sometimes if Ellie's like zombied out watching TV, she, uh, Hannah will say bye, and then whenever the show's over, she's looking around, where's Mom? And then I say, well, mom went to work. You said bye. She doesn't remember. And then she flips out crying, okay? That's kind of what the disciples' reaction is to Jesus that we saw last week. Whenever he said, where I'm going, you cannot come. Where I'm going, you cannot come. This was Jesus' ominous words to his disciples that prepared them for what was about to happen, which is his crucifixion, and joyfully to us all his resurrection three days later. But they were shocked. These men, these disciples, had been walking with Jesus for three years in intensive ministry, walking all throughout the Galilee, Judea, throughout Jerusalem, up and down, up and down their nation there, and now he's going to leave. What is up with that? As we're going to see today, he's leaving them, but he's not forsaking them. He's leaving them, but only so that he can go and prepare a place for them, as only he can. In the midst of their confusion, we're going to see the disciples ask three questions. There's actually two questions and one comment, and that's going to be sort of the structure that we're going to work through. Three comments by disciples, first from Peter, then from Thomas, and then finally from Philip, and then we're going to see three responses by Jesus, and he's going to answer their question, why are you going, so that they will trust that he will provide a way for heaven, to heaven, as only he can. And so let's go to John 14. I'm just going to read the text for us, starting in verse 1, all the way to verse 11. Then we're going to dive in. This is what it says. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. 
If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long that you still, not, you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Starting off here, we don't see a question. We see Jesus saying in verse 1, Let not your hearts be troubled, believe in God. To find the question, to find the concern, we actually have to go back. Uh, I'll just take a moment to, to quickly highlight this. Whenever these books were written, they weren't written with chapters and verses. Okay, They were just written. And it wasn't until much later that the chapters and verses were put in there for easy, quick reference. Okay, So there was never, whenever John wrote, he didn't get to the end of verse 37 there and then put a page breaker at 14 right, and then keep on going. That's not how it actually happened. We, we added that to make it easier to read. And this is one of those situations where the chapter break kind of breaks up what's going on in the actual text, okay? Going back to verse 37 of chapter 13, we see Peter say this, Lord, why can I not follow you? I will lay down my life for you. Why can I not follow you? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus says, where I'm going, you cannot come. Peter, I want to go. Let me go. I'll do anything to go. Jesus says, will you do that? You're actually going to deny me. And then he continues, but let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. And so Jesus here is responding, whenever he starts there in verse 1, to his disciples' general sense of unease. Again, these people have been walking with Jesus for three years. They've just learned that Judas is going to betray him. Or at least they know something's up. Because Jesus has given Judas the morsel of bread. Judas has left. What's going on there? Okay, they're uneasy. He has just said that he's about to go away. Okay, and that's sort of the, the main premise we've been looking at. So, okay, Jesus, why are you going away? They're uneasy. And then finally, he has just said that Peter, the head guy, will deny him. Will deny him. And so, yeah, I could see why they might be easy. And so, uh, uneasy. And so then he gives this, this command in verse 1, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Lord, why can I not follow you? I'll lay down my life for you. No. I'm going where I'm going, you cannot come. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, I want to focus on this word troubled here. Last week we looked at this text from uh, John 12, verse 27. This is what Jesus says. And I want to compare what he says that he's feeling to what he's telling his disciples. 
Verse 27, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come this hour. Father, glorify your name. Very interesting there. Why can Jesus be troubled and his disciples can't be troubled? Right? Now is my soul troubled. But then he commands his disciples, chapter 14, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Why does he say that? Well, I think it's because Jesus is about to go deal with their trouble, right? What is the trouble that Jesus is looking at? It's the cross. It's the crucifixion. But more than that, and we talk about the cross, more than that, it's enduring the wrath of God for sin, okay? And I want to say it that way because that's what it is. That's what makes the cross so horrible. Yeah, the nails to the hands, the nails to the feet, okay, that is horrible, but that is not the full extent of God's wrath endured for all of mankind. Every sin on him was laid, right? That is what is horrible about the cross. So yeah, maybe my heart would be troubled. But if I knew that I was going to endure that so that I could take away that punishment for my disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. Why? Believe in God. Believe also in me. He's about to go endure the wrath of God on behalf of sinners so they don't have to. So they don't have to take that trouble, okay? Then he says this in verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? So not only is he telling them to trade their troubles for faith, for belief, but then Jesus is saying that he is going to prepare a place for them. Okay, what is that? I don't know if you've ever had a place prepared for you. It's nice, right? You get into a place, and I'm not talking about a hotel, because that's what they're supposed to do, although me and Hannah have had some issues with hotels in the past, right? Um, but, you know, whenever you're going, so, as a, for instance, whenever my folks, uh, whenever I go to visit my folks in Mississippi, that's where I'm from, my mom always prepares the upstairs room for us. And it's, it's my room, so it's kind of weird to go back to my house and sleep in my bedroom that I grew up in, right? Um, but it's a big room. It has two beds in there, so the whole family kind of stretch out. There's a bathroom. There's a little kitchenette there. And my mom sort of makes it our little mini home. And it's something that is really nice because we're flying from Portland. We're flying, flying from Boston, we have a connection flight, we get into New Orleans, we get a rental car, right? It's terrible. I hate traveling, but this is my fate for the rest of my life since I live in Maine, right? And then I have to drive two hours north to Laurel, Mississippi, 166 Jeff Broad Road, and I'm greeted to a place prepared for us. It's really nice. I'm greeted to a place prepared for us. Jesus is saying that he's leaving them, but not to forsake them, but to prepare a place for them. He is going ahead of them so that their future meeting will be better than their present meeting. Now, prepare a place. Just think about that. Think about that. Consider the cost to stay in this room that they're going to go stay in, right? You go, I was just looking up hotel prices. We're having a mission team coming up over the summer. The guy was asking for help. $100 a night, $150 a night. What do you think the cost it is for you to stay in that 
room in heaven, that room that Jesus has prepared for you. Much more costly than any penthouse in the sky, much more costly than any seaside resort, right? The cost of preparing that room is the cost of Jesus' own life. And here, if we think about it that way, then we see a euphemism. Jesus, whenever he's saying, I go to prepare a place for you, he's not talking about fluffing pillows, right? He's not talking about making sure you have enough blankets so you don't get cold in the middle of the night. That's not what he's talking about. How does he prepare a place for you? By dying on the cross, right? That's what that is. By dying on the cross, that now you may enter in through his sacrifice. The payment is made on the cross. And then he continues, verse 2. So, be not troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to take care of this for you at an expense that you don't even realize the full extent of yet. And then verse 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Whenever we would travel in the past, before we had all these kids that really threw up our our life upside down, it was great because my folks would come and pick us up. It was just me and Hannah and Abe, um, sometimes just me and Hannah, You throw Ellie in there, it gets a little bit harder, but we can still manage it. But it was really nice because my folks would come, they'd come to the airport, we have a place prepared, but now they're picking us up, so we don't have to, like, get a rental car and all that. In New Orleans, it's terrible. They they built a new airport, and so you get in, the airport's nice, but then you have to jump on a, a bus, and they have to drive you to the old airport, to where the rental cars are. And so it's just one more step. It's terrible. And in the past, my folks would just come pick us up, no rental car, no mess, no taxi, none of that. And now we have three kids, four kids now. It's, that's never going to happen again. That's, those, those days are long gone, right? Go back to the text here. Not only is Jesus preparing a place for us, not only is he welcoming us and opening up the gates of heaven for us through his blood, but then he's going to come back and bring us to that place himself. It's not like he says, all right, here's the keys, you know, come on in, figure it out. Uh, whenever, whenever it becomes time, you make your way to me. Now, what does he say? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. He's going to pick us up. He's going to bring us with him, right? He's coming back, and he's going to take us to the place that he prepared. He doesn't even bother giving us directions because we don't need to know the directions. He's going to take us there himself. This is what it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 and 17. This is the Apostle Paul. And this is cool whenever you see these people saying the same thing in different ways. Let me give the context first of of the book of 1 Thessalonians. Um, The Apostle Paul is ministering to these people in Thessalonica, preaching the gospel to them, he, his, his trip was cut short because people were coming and persecuting them. So he wasn't able to fully express and fully teach you know, the, the teaching of the gospel. And so as he left, these people were concerned because people in their church had died. 
And they were afraid that because these people had died, they wouldn't know the salvation. They wouldn't make it into heaven. That was their concern. These people died. Jesus is going to come back. They're not going to be around. They're not going to make it in. This is what the Apostle Paul says. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. So he's saying Jesus is going to return, and everyone's going to know about it. And not because you read it on the news, because you heard it. You heard it. A voice, a sound of a trumpet, a cry of command. It says, And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Essentially what it's saying is Jesus will come back. Jesus is coming back. And what great news is that, right? not only preparing a place for us at the expense of his own life, through the cross, enduring the wrath of God, he's going to come back himself and bring us to that place. And I just want to center you in that very last piece there of, of verse 17. And so we will always be with the Lord. So we will always be with the Lord. Go back to John 14, verse 3. What does it say? It says, I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Saying the exact same thing. We'll always be with the Lord, so that where I am, you may be also. This reminds us the reason heaven is so great. Heaven is so great is because that's where God is, right? That's where God is. That's where Jesus is. I I know a lot of us look forward to heaven because we're going to see people that have passed on before us. I remember uh, seeing a Facebook post, this girl talking about she, you know, looking forward to seeing her friend in heaven. And that's great, provided that we know they're going to be there, right? But that is not what makes heaven great. What makes heaven great is that's where Jesus is, right? That's where God is. I think about Moses, right, meeting God. God says, take off your shoes. You're standing on holy ground. It's the presence. It's his presence in a place that makes it what it is. It's him. And so as Christians, we know we are most joyful because we know how the story ends. My grandma, my dad told me about my grandma before she bought a book. She would always read the last few pages to make sure it had a good ending before she bought it. Kind of defeats the purpose, right? Well, I got good news for Grandma. If she did that with the Bible, she would buy it. Because it's a good ending. It ends with us, with Jesus. And I want to make that point. I want to make that point because that's really, at the end of the day, that's what changes. That, that's your perspective change. We talk about um, that trite phrase for you know, the Christian faith. It's not a religion, it's a relationship. It's not a religion, it's a relationship. And that's so true. And whenever you sort of get in your mind that that's what you want, that you want salvation, that you want heaven, that you want all these things, growing up, they would try to scare us into heaven, right? Have you heard of heaven's gates and hell's flames? Have you ever heard of that before, the old school thing? It was like trying to, you know, hell's really bad, so choose follow Jesus, you can get to heaven. That's not the heart of it. That's not what it's about. It has nothing to do with what the Bible says. There is hell and that's a real thing and that's a real sort of um a danger and something you need to think about but but this is the heart of it psalm 27 verse 4 this is david okay one thing have i asked of the lord so if i could have one thing 
That will I seek after. What does he want? That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. That's what David wanted. He wanted to be where God was. He wanted to be where Jesus was. This is the heart of those who are heaven-bound. This is the great reward. We talked about Moses last week, who couldn't even see God as God fully expresses himself face-to-face because he would just get burnt up and, and you know he would die. So we can only see his back, just the smallest portion of God. You can only see his back. And it talks about Moses seeing God and coming out of the tent of meeting with his face shining, right? And that little smidgen of God that he saw, his face is shining bright. For those who are in Jesus Christ, they see the fullest revelation of God. And I just wonder for you, do you want to see that? Do you want that? Is the heart of David here one thing I seek after? Is that your heart to dwell with him? Do the words at the end of Thessalonians that we will always be with the Lord, that where I am, you may be also, is that something that you really want? That is what eternity is. Jesus is going to prepare a place for us. At the expense of his own life, he prepared it. It's not fluffing up pillows for you, right? Then he's going to come back. He's going to grab us. He's going to say, all right, guys, jump in the van. We're going home. That's exactly where we're going. That's the promise. So whenever Peter says, Lord, why can I not follow you? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus says, no, I will lay down my life for you. And I will come and bring you home with me. That's the first promise. Now, how do we get there? That's the second question. Verse 4, and you know the way to where I'm going. So I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to bring you myself. You're going to be with me. And you know that way, Jesus says. And then Thomas says, actually, we don't know that way. Verse 5, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? So Jesus, like, maybe you just flew over our head, but we don't know. We don't know what's going on. And then... Jesus responds, this is so important, with one of the clearest statements of the exclusive nature of his salvation. Okay, we're going to work through this together. Verse 6. Jesus said, okay, Thomas, what's the way? We don't know the way. Verse 6. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Here we see the clearest statement of Jesus being the only way of salvation. The clearest, without a doubt, statement of the exclusive nature of Christ Jesus' salvation. How are we going to make it to heaven? That's essentially what Thomas is asking. Jesus says, no one makes it to the Father apart from me. It is an unambiguous, clear statement of what the Reformers called solus Christus, although they had a little bit of a a different context for them, but solus Christus, that salvation is through Jesus and Jesus alone. This is how the early church interpreted these words. Peter, in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, if you remember last week, Peter was afraid. He's going to deny Jesus. He denied Jesus three times. A little servant girl came and said, you're with Jesus. Peter said, no, I wasn't. 
Peter totally afraid. Move forward, Acts chapter 4. Now he's preaching the gospel to the very people that killed Jesus. And before the Sadducean council, he says this, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Again, the clear expression of the exclusive nature of salvation, entry into heaven, if you want to put it that way, only by faith in Jesus Christ. What I mean by that? Repentance and faith. Turning from sin, trusting Jesus to take away your sin, that he endured that punishment on the cross, believing he rose from the dead. You're not on the side of your sin anymore. You're on team. Jesus transferred from domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son. Now, let's work this out, okay? I've used the word exclusive, and I use that word for a reason, because I want to highlight how this teaching of the exclusive nature of, of Jesus' salvation rubs against the teachings of our present age, okay? Particularly the sacred tenet of inclusivity. And I'll explain what I mean in a little bit. Let me first give a caveat. The gospel message is an inclusive message in the sense that everyone who believes in Jesus can be saved. doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter what you've done. doesn't matter what you're going to do. The blood of Jesus is strong enough. The arm of God is not so short that it cannot save. Okay? Romans 10.13 Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's what it says. So the gospel message, incredibly inclusive. But it is exclusive in the sense that salvation only comes by way of faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. And it's on that perspective I want to, I want to meditate. Because that, could be, you could be charged with being very narrow-minded, right? Very narrow-minded. How can you say that? You have a monopoly on God, right? If you say that, in our context, you will get that. I remember a lady at our church, across church, um was sharing that, that conversation came up at her home or whatever with some family members, and her sister-in-law or someone, someone like that was just incredibly offended that she would believe that, that there's only one way to heaven, okay? There's only one way to heaven. There is a belief in our society today that what you believe doesn't matter as much as how sincerely you believe it, okay? It's not so much the object of the faith, but the sincerity that you have that is important. So you may worship um, Allah, you may worship as a Buddhist, as a Hindu, or whatever. God doesn't care so long as you are sincere in your belief. And so the conception is, God's at the top of a mountain, there are many paths up to the top. Okay, This is the Christian path, this is the Muslim path, the Buddhist path. They all lead us to the same God. They're all legitimate. They're all legitimate ways to access God. Okay? Um, so this is, this is what I would say would be a, a default position of our society. I, I remember my brother had a close friend who passed away, and my sister, talking about this person, she said, well, at least she was a person of faith. At least she had faith. And I was thinking to myself, well, so what? So what? Right? Faith in what? I can have faith that a three-legged chair will hold my weight, and see that faith come crashing down whenever I've got to pick myself up off the floor, right? It is not 
the presence of faith, but the object of faith. Is what you believe true or not? Right? Is this true or not? And so the question, you know, going back to this analogy, God at the top of a mountain, all faiths being equal, in my opinion, this just cannot be true. Because if you look at what these faiths teach, they, don't, they teach exclusive things. If you really look at the Bible, if you really look at the Quran, if you look at all the other stuff, they can't be talking about the same God. Let me give you for instance. The foundation of the Christian faith is that Jesus was crucified 2,000 years ago in history. That that actually happened in human history. And on this event, the entire religion rests. So if Jesus was not crucified, you are wasting your Sunday mornings. Just sleep in. Okay? Now, do you know what the Quran says about the crucifixion of Jesus? Have you ever read what the Quran says about the crucifixion of Jesus? This is what it says. This is what it says. This is quoting the Quran. That they said in boast, we killed Christ Jesus, the son of Mary, the messenger of Allah. Okay, so you're talking about the Jews. The Jews said they killed Jesus. But they killed him not, nor crucified him. But so it was made to appear to them, and to those who differ therein, are full of doubts, with no certain knowledge, but only conjecture to follow, for of surety they killed him not. Okay? So the Quran teaches that Jesus wasn't crucified at all. It never happened. And this is not a knock on Quran. I just want you guys to understand what, what their teaching is. So the Bible says Jesus definitely was crucified as a historical fact, the Quran says Jesus definitely was not crucified as a historical fact. Now, can these both be right? No. Can Jesus both be crucified and not crucified at the same time? No, it's impossible. One's right, one's wrong. Was, he either was crucified or he wasn't crucified. It goes deeper than that. The Quran says Jesus was not the Son of God. He was just a prophet. The Bible says he definitely was the Son of God. John chapter 14, that you may believe. So either was or he wasn't. What I'm saying, this view that they're all the same and try to harmonize the view and they're all, you know, just different paths to the same God, it's not helpful to smooth out these important distinctions and differences to say that this is, you know, the same God but different paths. Whenever you actually read the texts, you realize that there's no way these can be the same. There's no way it can work out this way because they make mutually exclusive claims. What's going on here? Why do we see this? Why is it such an offense to us? To, I say us, this, our society. I think it's an offense to our society because they don't want to say anyone is wrong, right? And so they offer sort of a harmonization or a synthesis of the world religions to say, you know, like a kumbaya type of thing, okay? A kumbaya type of thing. And I'm not against that in a sense of trying to find common ground with people and all that. But what is going on, instead of providing a harmonization or a th synthesis, what they're actually doing is just offering a different worldview, offering a different truth claim. If they're saying that these are just different paths to God, what they're offering is just a different path. Okay? It's just a different path. They're creating a different truth claim alongside. It's a secular take on religion that I would say doesn't seriously take the claims of the religions that they seek to harmonize. 
Because if they're both true, then God's lying to someone. He's either lying to you as a Christian, or he's lying to the Muslims, or to the other religions. Okay? We have a sort of approach that you just need to believe whatever you want to believe, and it will all work out in the end, and don't sweat the small stuff. What I want to do today is disarm you of this thinking so that you will soberly assess whether these claims of Jesus are actually true or not. Because what you need to understand is that Jesus truly did die on a cross, and I would say in this discussion, even more important, if he really did raise from the dead, then that really impacts you. And that really changes things for you. This is the most astounding thing about the Christian faith, is that God rests all of it on a dead body. And if you can find the body, it's all a lie. Find the body of Jesus, it's all a lie. But if you can't find the body, then what does that mean? Everything rests on that. And so we go back to Jesus who says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Oh, there's a lot of different paths to heaven. Well, what are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with that? This is why we must preach the gospel. He must preach it in a way that is full of the Holy Spirit, that's winsome, that's willing to have these types of conversations, but is not willing to buckle from what this, the Bible actually teaches for the sake of a, a, a societal, you know, a societal want to playing nice with others and want to be squishy on things that we just can't. Let's have the conversation. Let's point out what the Bible says, and let's work through responses like this that we might get, because Jesus truly is the only way, the truth, and the life. And God hasn't. It's not like God has given has not given us a witness to that. The empty tomb screams of this witness of Jesus' person. So yes, Thomas asked, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? He is looking at the way. And the entire world is looking at the way. The way is Jesus, and the proof is in the empty tomb. Let's keep going along. Jesus gives this response to them. And then Philip says this, says, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. So Jesus has just said, if you had known me, you have known the Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip, not totally convinced yet, somehow, says, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus responds, have I been with you so long, and still you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say... Show us the Father. Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak in my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. Consider that Philip, up until this time, and the rest of the disciples, have seen Jesus, in chronological order, turn water into wine, He's seen Jesus heal an official's son. He's seen Jesus heal a lame beggar, walk on water, feed masses with a few fish and loaves, heal a man born blind, and finally his crowning achievement up to this point, raise a man from the dead. Couple that with Jesus' teaching. John 10 verse 30, I and the Father are one. 
Jesus has proven to Philip and the rest of the disciples time and time again, to see him is to see the Father, that you are in the presence of God. Think about whenever Jesus um, commands, whenever they're on the, the boat, and the winds and the waves are coming, he commands the winds and the waves to be still. And, the, and, the, and they've already seen Jesus do crazy things up to that point. The disciples look around, they're like, who is this man? That even the winds and the waves obey him. They've seen these amazing things, and yet Philip needs a little bit more to be convinced. He still has that extra proof. Jesus, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Just give us one more thing, and we'll believe that you are the way, the truth, and the life. I think a lot of us can be like Philip. Some more, some less, but just like Philip we can be with Jesus, we can experience these things, we can be a part of the church, we can see God do amazing things in our life, and then still remain a little bit unconvinced, right? Just one more thing, if you do this, then we will believe. And he turns and says to us, just as he says to Philip, have I been with you so long, and still you do not know me. How easy it is for me to doubt, and I'm sure for you to doubt, that in Christ Jesus we have everything we need. All the promises of God, it says in 2 Corinthians, find their yes in Jesus. Fullness of joy, of peace, of rest, of life, of truth, the way of salvation, it's all there. He's going to prepare a place for us by His own blood and coming back to bring us there, proving Himself again and again. So for you, I want you to ponder this question. How long have I been with you, and yet you still do not know me? I pray that all of you would know him in truth. I pray that you would know him in certainty. I pray that you would know him as the way, the truth, and the life. And that's the beauty of the gospel, that this God can be known. Our society is so confused. They get so many different takes on who God is, on what truth is, on what meaning of life is. The Apostle Paul talks about groping around in darkness, like I'm trying to find my bathroom light in the middle of the night, right? We're trying to find God, but He is the God who has revealed Himself. He is the light of the world. He can be known, and you can know Him. And so what I call you to do is to believe. Jesus is the way and the truth and the light. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Live also in him. Let's pray. Dear Lord, um, just thank you for your word that comes in in power and in truth. And it, it is enough, Lord. We, we, um, we're so, I, I would say, distracted by, by things in this world, by, by issues in our lives, and we get kind of knocked off, Lord. And we've got to come back to you come back to you in your word, come back to you in prayer, come back to you in worship, come back to you with your people, and just be re-centered and reassess and let the word come in and do its thing and soberly assess, Lord. And so I recognize that just like the sower with the seed throws out the seed and it lands on soil, Lord, you work with us individually where we're at. And so there's a lot of soil here in front of me. 
a lot of different people, a lot of different experiences, a lot of different beliefs, Lord. It's the same word that goes out. It's got to do its work, Lord, as you move and work. And so I pray over the word, Lord. I pray for each person here that we would not miss this time. It's so easy for us to come and do our thing and leave. Not miss it. Because there's a big work you're doing. There's a lot of stuff, a lot of amazing things you want to do in our lives with us through your word and through your spirit. I pray that you would find good soil. I pray that everyone here individually really think on what we have discussed today. They would take the issues of their lives and just bring it before you right now as we respond to you. That you would deal with us where we're at. We need that, Lord. We don't want to leave this time unfruitful having missed another opportunity to experience your grace. Lord, we take comfort in Jesus, the one who has prepared a place. We know the expense of that, who's coming back again to bring us to that place, who is the only way to that place, and yet we are full of doubts. Pray, Lord, that you would take away troubled hearts, give hearts of faith. Lord, we need you to do that. We invite you here. You are amongst us. We thank you that you never leave us nor forsake us. We pray all these things in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to the Sunday morning sermon taught by Pastor Aaron Manning at Fort Hill Community Church in Gorham, Maine. For more information about Pastor Aaron or Fort Hill Community Church, visit us on Facebook or check out our website at www.forthillchurch.com. 